Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things it can do for people and the planet. My name is Kevin Fulta. I'm a professor, podcast host, uh, write, do a lot of other things. Today we're going to talk about a classic story in genetic engineering of crops, and it's the story of Percy Schmeiser. And if you've been paying attention to the discussions around genetic engineering of crop plants, the name Schmeiser is a familiar one. Recently, there was a film, well, not recently, last year, there was a film that came out called Percy versus Goliath. Schmeiser was a small farmer who uh, wanted to just save his own seeds. And it's a classic story of the company wanting to protect its intellectual property rights against a farmer who was increasingly defiant saying that they were his seeds and he could do what he wanted. And we learn what the court said. Uh, we know what the court said because that's history. But what did Hollywood say? Where did they get it right and where did they get it wrong? So I wanted to speak with someone who was there in the room. We're speaking with Trish Jordan, and she's the Bayer Crop Science Senior Business Partner for Government and Industry Affairs, uh, who followed this story. And uh, welcome to the podcast, Trish. And <laughs> start out by telling us, what was your role in the Schmeiser story? I was the communications and public affairs director at the time. And so I worked very closely with both our internal attorneys, but also our external attorneys who were portrayed very differently in the movie. And so I kind of feel like I have an honorary law degree, which I don't. But um, my job obviously was to respond to all the public inquiries and the media inquiries and the public interest in this case. So as a communications professional, it was very, very interesting for me to be able to do that. I sat next to you in uh, Winnipeg at the play, Percy, and there was somebody who actually was playing you in the, in the, in the play. <laughs> yeah, I know. And, and you thought that was really cool. I remember that. I, I did, because if you think about if I think about my career and, you know, my rather what I call mundane role in the whole affair, um, I would have never have thought I would have been cast as a character in the play, but I had taken this call from the playwright at the time, and this was well before um, it went to the Supreme Court, um, saying that she was doing this play. And I thought, oh, my goodness, why would I ever talk to somebody from from Montreal and a playwright to boot. So, but I had a weak moment, and it turned out to be a very good moment because she just wanted our side of the story, which again is is somewhat rare. Um, but she wanted to understand our perspective on the whole story. And over over time, I think she grew to completely understand not only our perspective but Percy's story and the whole, you know. Um, what do you call it? Rigmarole around the uh, around the entire case. So it was it was a very interesting time in my career. And I think that when you understand your side of the story, as well as Schmeiser's story, as it's told in the many different ways, you really kind of can guess what really happened here. And I think it does really really help us understand everything involved. So we'll dive into that today. And I guess maybe saying that, you know, stepping off is that, you know, I'm guessing that your interpretation of events and how you describe it may be very different because you're with the company, you were with the Monsanto company at the time before they were folded into Bayer Crop Science. And so I guess the thing is, if someone's listening, how can they believe your perspective on this? And is there a place where they can actually see like actual records or verify what's there? Yeah, fantastic question. I mean, I think if you think about it, and hard to believe, number one, it became a play. Number two, it became a movie, quote unquote, a movie, a Hollywood movie, which is 
pretty much entertainment, right? It's not, if they actually told the real story and included us, which they did not for the movie, it would be rather boring, I would say. <laughs> but um, the the interesting thing about about the movie coming up is that, you know, like I said, it was created for entertainment and um, it takes some creative license, no, no doubt about it. And again, if you are a person who says or thinks or leans a certain way to believe that, well, why would we believe a big multinational corporation over a poor elderly little farmer? Um, you might believe Percy's story, but what I always tell people is when it comes down to a court of law, where you have to prevent facts and supposedly truth and have it interpreted by judges and more than one judge, um, not one judge at the federal court, three at the federal court of appeal, and then nine at the Supreme court, you know, they, they're kind of tasked with looking at the facts of the case and interpreting what is presented versus believing somebody's story. So I think that's really what it comes down to. And again, Kevin, I don't expect people to necessarily believe, you know, what a company says. I just know in my work life, the thing that many people misinterpret is I am not allowed to make up stories. If I worked for Greenpeace, I could walk in every day and it would be creative writing 101. But I'm not allowed to do that. I, I have lawyers, I have um, guidance, I have policy, and I'm only allowed to state what I know to be true. So it might not be, be believed by everybody, but I know that I'm telling my, ver my version, my truth of the story, and it was governed by lawyers and what we were allowed to say, and it was um, supported by the courts. And, you know, I don't give Mr. Schmeiser a lot of credit and God bless his soul. He's passed away now. Um, but the one thing I do credit him for is he was a really, really good storyteller with a lot of support behind him. Yeah, that's really an important part of this is, you know, it's, we, it is good that you mentioned that he passed away not long ago. So, you know, I, I can't interview him without a seance. So it's, 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 uh, but it, it's, uh, it, it, you know, that's, that's part of the problem, you know, in this, but, you know, we, there were a lot of things that were verifiable from the movie itself or the script itself and things that seemed to be reflected in reality, maybe weren't told the same way, but when the movie began, it showed him in Bruno, Saskatchewan, uh, making a killing on the seeds that he was on the canola that he was producing, uh, for oil, uh, delivering large amounts when nobody else was delivering um, and producing when apparently others weren't able to do so. And it was from these seed lines that he had, right? And uh, it seemed to me that when we saw the play that this was widely known around town, that he had something that he was using that maybe others suspected was traded seed. Yes, correct, Kevin. And I found in the movie, it was interesting, If and you will recall that when he delivered his canola harvest, it was like, wow, look at this check. And then he bought a new combine, which is a little bit stereotypical because I don't think most farmers do that. They probably use their proceeds to pay down debt or pay down costs associated with growing their crop. But I think what they were trying to intimate there that he had a really good year and he had a really good yield. And the reason he had that really good yield is what we um, argued in court is that he was actually growing Roundup Ready canola, patented seeds, uh, which do confer certain benefits to the grower and was doing so without actually having paid for those seeds. So that's kind of where the story starts. And I think that's where the court also um, made their final determination, at least at the federal court, the initial court hearing in 2000 was that, you know, clearly he was not an innocent infringer. He knew he had this. 
Um, there's some debate about how he got that, and we can talk about that. But he knew he had this, or he ought to have known he had this um, technology in his field, yet he's, he's always described it as a contaminant, yet he set it aside, um, segregated it, took it to an elevator, had it cleaned, and then used that seed to plant his 1998 crop, which was the thousand acres that he was ultimately found to, to have infringed our patent. And let's start, maybe talk about his claim of uh, finding the seed. So he said that this was some seed that uh, survived herbicide treatment when he was doing a spring burn down to get rid of weeds, that this stuff was drifted, you know, rogue plants that survived the herbicide spray. And he thought, well, these must be really strong plants, at least in the movie, yeah. right? So yeah. save the seeds. And then as you, as you mentioned, but as I understand in reality, he was aware of the Roundup resistance technology. And the contention was, was that he actually was using Roundup to select for the seeds that had the trait. And then, as you mentioned, having them cleaned and then using those, ultimately, I think it was 1,000 or 1,100 acres that he had planted that uh, later would claim just blew into his field. Correct. And, and um, whether it was our fault or um, lack of um, persistence, I don't know. We, we knew or we felt we knew where he got the seeds from, but we, we, that was never proven in a court. But the fact that he told this story, which again, we believe was a completely fabricated story, and his story was that, well, he always sprayed into the ditch and most farmers will plant into the, what do you call the ditch or the culvert or the public rights away, which isn't their land, but they do it because they get some extra, extra yardage and there's nothing illegal about that. Um, but he told this story in court that um, he was just out spraying some you know, round up around the power poles and he noticed that a few plants survived. So instead of just stopping, he then, according to his story, decided, well, I'm going to spray like into my field, a good three acres and no farmer in their right mind would spray three acres of a crop if they actually knew it wasn't roundup tolerant because it would all die. But anyway, he told this story in court. He said, well, I, I started spraying around these power poles. So then I went into my land and I sprayed a good three acres. And based on my estimation, about 60% of that crop um, survived. And okay, you might be able to believe that story. But then after he did that, anything that survived... He harvested, he segregated it, he put it in a truck all by itself, and then took that seed to the elevator, had it cleaned, and then used that seed to plant a thousand acres the next year. So it's actually his story that he told in court that that the judge said, okay, I can't I can't decide on all the facts that Monsanto has presented or the arguments that Percy has presented, but here's the story that I heard, and this is why you are a deliberate infringer. You sprayed a crop, a certain percentage survived, you harvested that, you segregated that, and then you used that seed to plant your 1998 crop. And maybe we should have gone back a little bit. I'm kind of remiss in not asking you up front. Why is it illegal for him to save the seeds that you know he acquired? Well, if you believe his story, again, I'm not saying that his story that he told in court is true. But the judge's words, um, I think were fair, but they didn't really help us. Not that it was his job to help us. But basically what he said is he knew or ought to have known that those seeds 
had some sort of special benefit. And any farmer that's listening to this podcast, and I know a lot of your people aren't listening to your podcast, but um, or a lot of consumers are probably also listening to your podcast. But the point being is if you were a farmer and you actually sprayed a good three acres of your canola crop just to see what would survive, like if you yeah. had just normal canola seeds, everything would die and you would have nothing. Yeah. And so you say, okay, well, whatever. I lost three acres. No problem. But in his case, again, it's his word, he said 60% survived. And that is the seed that he kept and reused. So the words are kind of important here. And this is where it gets tricky between folklore and between you're a judge and a lawyer. The judge said, well, you sprayed this and 60% survived and it shouldn't survive, right? So that's where he used those words. You knew or you ought to have known that something wasn't right here, that you had these um, um, herbicide-tolerant seeds that survived the spray of Roundup in your field. And instead of calling somebody and saying, what the heck, I've never grown this, why is this in my field, like several other farmers did who testified at trial, um, said, hey, I don't want this in my summer fallow crop. Like I'm used to using Roundup to clean my field out of weeds and all the stuff survived. Like what the heck, Monsanto, get over here and fix this. He did none of that. He just segregated that seed, used that seed to plant a thousand acres in the subsequent year. So it was actually the 1998 year that kind of got him into, got him into a bit of mess. Yeah, it really does show intent. No, the, the question goes back to uh, the idea of the technology agreement, that farmers who buy this sign an agreement saying that they will not use it. He never signed that agreement, but still he is playing by the rules. And this is what made this case so interesting, is that now he's playing by some new rules, that it's just like if you were to have a copy of you know, office show up at your house. You can't just make copies of it and 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 give it sell away it to to, yeah. and sell it on eBay, <laughs> right? And and yeah. I I guess I and that's probably the best analogy. You can't uh, buy somebody's recordings and make copies for your friends and give them or sell them. You know, give them away. You can kind of guess, but but this is the major the major hang up here is this technology transfer that you you're yes. not allowed to, to own that technology and benefit from it without giving a little something to the inventor. Correct. And, and he did. In, and again, you know, he had a lot of help in creating his story after he was, quote unquote, caught. I don't think he had help initially. But the bottom line is without patents and intellectual property detection. Um, and here's something probably your listeners would understand. We likely wouldn't have Google. We wouldn't have Apple. We wouldn't have some Samsung. We wouldn't have Microsoft. And maybe people would think, oh, that's all good stuff. But you name any other technology that we take granted for every day, and the same is true in agriculture or in pharmaceuticals for that matter. Um, but IP rights protect the investment that the technology provider, in this case Monsanto, had put into that technology. And um, that's really what allows us as a company to continue, continue to invest in new innovations to meet our farmer customers needs and whatever their you know future needs are and a lot of people i can understand why they why they miss that but if you think about even a contract like you sign a contract for your credit card or you sign a mortgage agreement and if you don't abide by the terms and conditions that are outlined in that mortgage agreement then your bank's probably going to get mad at you and is probably going to do something to make sure that you, you know, um, meet your obligations. So I think it's the same here. I think the narrative that got spun though, and, and again, I will give Mr. Schmeiser credit as well as the activists who came to his support is they did a very good job telling the story about well, I'm just an innocent little farmer and I always save and reuse my seeds and I select the best seeds every year. And so 
why are people coming after me? Because I'm just a seed saver. So why would you do this to me? Because I've done this every year since I started farming and now the rules have changed. And I will admit that Monsanto, we were a disruptor. Um, and I don't say that in a negative way, but we introduced new technology and ultimately it became a hybrid crop, just like corn, right? And canola now is a hybrid crop and the large majority of people, they might try and save and reuse it, but it doesn't perform the ne you know, the next year the same way that it did the first year. And so they might try it once and maybe get caught, maybe not get caught, but it's not a good idea because it just doesn't perform the same way. I'm speaking with Trish Jordan. She's a senior business partner in government and industry affairs with Bayer Crop Sciences. And we're talking about the Percy Smizer affair, um, the, which was popularized in a recent movie called Percy versus Goliath. And this is the Talking Biotech Podcast. We'll be back in just a moment. Would your participation in social media save lives? Early in COVID-19, we thought the world would finally gravitate towards science and evidence, especially in response to a global pandemic. However, from national leadership to conspiracy-plagued internets, it's clear we're suffering from an information pandemic as well. Now here at the Talking Biotech Podcast, we give you the information to battle disinformation around technology as it applies mostly to agriculture and medicine. Information here allows you, the listener, to participate in broader discussions with confidence, helping to advance innovation to application. Today, all of us need to be engaging the copious nonsense that plagues social media, especially in the area of COVID-19. Crackpot claims bad science, and poor quality publications are only deepening the pandemic, at least here in the USA. Kudos to the rest of you. So this is a call to the science-minded. Identify who you can trust. Share their content on social media networks. Join the conversation. Gently and kindly refute false information. Remember, you'll never change the mind of someone unwilling to learn, but the internet is a spectator sport. Become the trusted source of information to help those that don't know who to trust. Help them realize who to trust and make better decisions that could ultimately save lives. Improving the world with a simple act of kind communication, that's what the Talking Biotech Podcast is all about. And your participation has never been more important. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech Podcast. We're speaking with Trish Jordan uh, in an interview I've wanted to do for a very, very long time. And part of the problem was I was waiting for the movie to get onto netflix or amazon or something like that because it, we couldn't find it in a theater anywhere out where i live but um it's it's it was kind of in a limited release and really didn't get much fanfare when it came out and there were a lot of things i had questions about maybe you could help me with those too is all of the activists or the main person who's played by Christina Ricci in this film uh, came from some organization called People for the Environment or something. And was that a actual organization? And did he have a kind of hand-holding mentor to kind of guide his development as a storyteller and as a figurehead of uh, little guy against big corporations? Yeah. So the first thing, again, I'll repeat, movies are created for entertainment and there's a lot of fictional um, uh, names used in the movie. So that activist organization, um, which I think was fairly portrayed in the movie, actually, um, it doesn't exist. But there are other act activist organizations who did support him be behind the scenes. So. Sierra Club, 
Council of Canadians, Greenpeace, you name it. They definitely, um, you know, supported him, number one. But I think as the movie showed, and this was the one thing that was surprising to me, I think the movie showed how the activists used an individual to generate funds, to tell their story, to support their cause. And you and I both know that that's what activist groups do. They're very, very good at telling stories because they don't have to tell the truth. They can just use fiction. And um, again, I, I think I've said this earlier, I... You know, I had a very close relationship with Mr. Schmeiser, whether I wanted to or not. And the one thing I will give him credit for is he followed their script. Like when he stood up to speak, I could recite his entire speech because I work in public affairs and I work in communications. And I know that somebody wrote that story for him. And to his credit, he delivered that story. And I truly believe that over time, maybe not in year one when he was at the Federal Court of Canada, but I think over time, he told that story over and over and over again that he actually believed it was true. And he was a great speaker and a sympathetic carrier, and he was a little bit um, argumentative um, which is quote unquote, why we chose him. If you can use those words in the first place, um, he was combative. He was from a small town. He, people in his community didn't particularly like him. He didn't have a great reputation. We knew we had a solid case, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, I think it was a coming together, like you hear the words, the perfect storm, and I think we got caught in the perfect storm. But for us, even though people might not always believe this because it did impact our image as a company, it was for us, it was always about we need to protect our patent. We need to ensure that our patent is valid. And often that involves taking it to a, to a court case. And we thought we had the, the perfect character. And then the activists got involved with him and they just spun things very effectively, I might add, in their favor. And, you know, big versus big versus little, multinational versus little farmer, we're never going to win that as a company. I don't care who you are. You're not going to win that PR battle. And we fought the good fight and we continued to defend what we did. And people will judge whether we did the right thing or the wrong thing. But ultimately, our patent was upheld, which is what we were trying to do. When we look back, even today, you go online and you discuss biotechnology and why it has some advantages. And you talk about risks and benefits, whatever you do, like I do all the time. Mm -hmm. And people will say, well, the reason I don't like it is because farmers get sued when some seeds blow in their field and Monsanto will sue them. And then usually after I say, well, Monsanto hasn't been a company for three years, <laughs> I, I, I always wonder was Percy Schmeiser's case the genesis of that entire trope or were there other ones that were just as visible? Um, that was the first one for sure, Kevin. Um, and, and again, like this was new territory for us, you know, again, we had lawyers behind us. We were just trying to defend our patents. So that might've been our mistake. We were just thinking, well, we've got the law behind us. We know what we're doing is right. We're trying to defend our patent. We're trying to ensure that our patent's valid, but we didn't understand the whole storytelling around it. I mean, and I lived it. I, I lived it from 2000 to 2008 with this case. And as the public affairs person, not just me solely, but also many other people within the company, it was a challenge for us to kind of get on top of that. Um, but yeah, this was the first case that we took to a legal court. Um, it was the first case that we won. There were subsequently others, many in them in the U.S. involving corn and soybeans, more so soybeans because corn was a hybrid, primarily soybeans, I would say, in the U.S., um, but yeah, this was a precedent setting case. And I don't know, Kevin, if you remember in the movie, uh, and I don't know even if this is true. I don't think it's true because in the movie, it was kind of like the activist 
um, used him, used him, supported him, supported them. And then when he said, well, I'm going to go to the Supreme Court, they went, oh, no, no, no. Like, no, we're not going to do that. Don't do that. We don't want to support you if you go to the Supreme Court, because this could be precedent setting. And it was precedent setting. And I don't know, I would argue, fortunately for us, unfortunately for farmers who have had the benefit of GM technology since that time, it sent the precedent for, yeah, you can do this. You can patent genes that inserted in seeds convey a benefit. And so, um, I mean, looking back on it now, I mean, it's like, what, 20, 25 years? I don't even know the timing, but 1998 to 2000 and what day is it? 2021, 20, <laughs> 22? Sorry, I've been stuck in a COVID bubble. Um, but a long time has passed. But at the time, it was quite novel and it was quite new and any new technology is disruptive. And Monsanto, rightly or wrongly, chose to be the leader and chose to bring that forward. And I think uh, upon reflection, farmers go, yes, we understand this. The technology is beneficial. It gives us a benefit. Therefore, I'm willing to pay for this benefit because I get a benefit from this benefit. Yes, the company also gets a benefit, but me, Mr. Farmer, I benefit it. Benefit from this, from higher yields, less passes over the field, less fuel, less herbicide, better weed control, better yield. And that ultimately is the story. But I think a lot of non-farming people don't really understand that, right? They just um, kind of um, relate to the human story in all of this. Well, I think that was really well reflected in the film where you would have people from the city or the town where he lived in Bruno, Saskatchewan, like he would get flipped off by other farmers and other farmers who, you know, were paying for this technology that probably knew that he was pirating this stuff. And, and that seemed to come across pretty clear in the movie. Yeah, I think, it, I think it did. And, and again, that was what we kind of, um, based our our thoughts on when we said well okay we've got this character that we've got this individual not necessarily well liked in his community his neighbors know he's doing this the other farmers are paying for this technology and this guy is not and he's quote unquote getting away with something and that was always our mantra like we Obviously, we wanted to protect our technology, and yes, we wanted to benefit from the innovation that we brought to the marketplace, but we were also defending other farmers who were uh, playing by the rules, had agreed to purchase this technology, sign their agreements, pay more for this technology, Kevin, um, and we were kind of protecting them. Because they were constantly saying, look at man, hey, if I, I get this, I understand what you're doing. I understand this patented technology, but if we're going to pay to use this technology, we don't expect somebody else to be able to get it for quote unquote free and get away with it. So you better have a program in place that protects me as a paying purchaser. So uh, there was a lot at stake here, actually, that I think gets missed in the whole discussion. And and again, if you're not a big advocate for a company that introduces new technology and you, you have that mindset where you think all we care about is, um, you know, making money and going after the little guy, that, there's like, that's so far from the truth about who we are as a company. Uh, whether it's Monsanto or whether it's Bear, is, you know, we're in the business of helping farmers. Um, and that's what we try and do every single day. And they ultimately have the choice as to what technology they choose to purchase or they choose not to purchase. And so that, that was always our focus. Now, see, I always frame the question of patents within the university because we're not a for-profit company, mm. yet we have a new strawberry variety that'll come out and they will have patents on that and restrict very much who can vegetatively propagate that because all the strawberries are clones of that one foundational plant. So millions and millions of plants all come from that first one. And that one plant might take five to 10 years and, and you know, hundreds 
of acres of farmland, soil, uh, fertilizer, insect control, other crop protection, labor, 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 fuel, fuel, fuel. And the only way that that breeding program can continue, since it's not a business, is by the little bit of royalties that come back to the program from the sale of those assets that help farmers. And so yes. it, if, when you decorporatize this and make it a, right. about the university, then it kind of makes a little more sense because it's, it, it's not about shareholders. It's, it's about just ha- being, it's like just the fundamental ability to be able to continue to do what you do. Yeah. And you're, you're a plant breeder and that's a really good example, Kevin. You know, if you think about universities, you think about something in the public domain, but still, if you're the plant breeder, you've put a lot of time and effort and intellectual property and money and research um, to developing and delivering that new strawberry. And so why should somebody get to take all your efforts and just have them for free when they didn't develop it? Right. So, um, you know, whether it's, um, an innovation such as herbicide tolerant seeds, um, you know, growers ultimately benefit from that. And to me, if I were a researcher and it doesn't even need to be a a university researcher like you, it could be, you know, the common one that we hear about is music, right? So somebody has created an incredible song that everybody likes. And if, you know, that's their intellectual property, they put their heart and soul into that. And they probably put many hours and many dollars into producing that song. And if somebody else can get that for free without paying for it, you're not giving the benefit to the quote unquote inventor. So there needs to be a benefit for the inventor. I believe there needs to be an event, uh, a benefit to the university, to the songwriter, to the company. And yeah, I don't think it's fair to single out companies for, for bringing beneficial technologies to the market, even though our whole point in that, and you mentioned it earlier is As a business, the whole reason you have a business is to have a profit. If you don't have a profit, and maybe in our case, you don't have shareholders, if you're not giving a profit to your shareholders, they're not going to invest in your company and you're going to have no money to do anything and then you're not going to exist. So it's kind of like that story of um, maybe beating up on somebody who came up with a successful idea and then somehow penalizing them for for that idea well when you look at this movie across you know from beginning to end was there anything that you saw that just made you really roll your eyes as entirely hollywood embezzle or, uh, i almost said embezzlement embellishment <laughs> so like uh like you know maybe the vans that would follow him yes. around so yeah. like, like, like what were some of the real real oversteps yeah, that one was a real overstep for me. The whole surveillance and you have these investigators. We we did have investigators, if you want to call them that, but we never, ever would go on public property, number one. And number two, we didn't surveil people and haunt them down in the middle of the night and scare them or whatever. We you know, we had to collect evidence and we collected evidence from the public rights of way. But the only way we got onto a farmer's land, and in this case, Percy Schmeiser's land was through a court order because he didn't have a TSA. He didn't have a technology stewardship agreement with us, which farmers sign when they purchase our seed, which grants us access. So we actually had to go to the courts and said, look at you know, here's what we're thinking. Here's what we're seeing. Here's the evidence that we have based on what we've collected publicly. Could we please get a court order to go on his land? And he was there with us every step of the way. And we collected our samples and we gave him half this. Actually, we gave him about half the samples. We collected half the samples. So he had the same samples that we had. And, um, you know, he had the opportunity to be there with us. And that's still our process today. And most farmers, you know, sometimes people just make bad decisions. 
and most farmers are cooperative. Mr. Schmeiser was, um, I would say, overly combative. And I think he had help in that, or that might have just been his personality. And I don't say that to be a bad thing, but he he had his due process. He had the option to go through the courts. He chose to go. We took him to court initially. He chose to appeal. He chose to go to the Federal Court of Appeal. He chose to go to the Supreme Court of Canada. So he had lots of opportunities to tell his story. And um, yeah, that's what I think makes it such such an interesting story on reflection. And at the end of the day, he ultimately didn't have to pay any fines for the, uh, for this. He just had to agree to not do it again. Right. Was that the final conclusion? This is my personal opinion. This isn't a company opinion, but having sat through it, I think the Supreme court didn't really understand what the utility of the invention was. Because they got all caught up on, well, if you're a canola farmer and you deliver canola, they got confused about if I deliver, you know, generic conventional canola, do I get paid whatever? I'll just make up a price, $20 a bushel. But if I deliver Roundup Ready canola, do I, do I get paid $40 a bushel? And of course, that's not the case because the ultimate raw product is a commodity and it's all based on commodity prices. So they didn't understand that the benefit was in the reduced weed control, the reduced fuel costs, the higher yield because of better germplasm and better weed control. And so ultimately where they got when it came down to they definitely found that he had infringed and then the second part of that is they go to something called and i won't get this right because i'm not a lawyer but it's something called accounting for profits um and that's an entire different discussion and they got all bogged down into well did he make more profit and the supreme court in their minds decided that he didn't really gain more profit from this, even though obviously he did, because our value on the cost of the seed was about $20,000, which doesn't sound like a lot. But um, so that, that's where they decided that, you know what, we're done with this case. You know, it's been five, five years. You know, Mr. Schmeiser, you pay your costs. Bear, you pay your costs. You don't owe any, Mr. Schmeiser, you don't owe them any more monetary kind of fines. So that I think that's also where um, Mr. Schmeiser in his mind often told the story afterwards that, well, I won. I lost 5-4. It was, or he doesn't say he lost. He would never say that. He said it was a split decision. It was five to four, right, between the Supreme Court justices. But where I really won is I didn't have to pay them a cent. And in his mind, if that made him feel good, great. Ultimately for us, it wasn't about the money. And I know that's hard for people to believe. It wasn't about us recouping our costs. It was about us having a court validate that number one, our patent was valid. And number two, that our patent had been infringed. And so we felt like we had the quote unquote win in that case. And so the innovation can continue, right? And I guess- exactly. I guess the, the, maybe we could conclude. I really appreciate that you've been so really fair and very, very careful in how you've treated the situation. I really appreciate that. But how dangerous is it? How dangerous is it for wider issues of technology acceptance, especially in crop space when you have art or Hollywood stretching the truth and really perpetuating kind of a myth that's really been uh, become part of the narrative against genetic engineering and crop plants is how, you know, how do you feel about that? Well, you know, having lived through it, it was definitely difficult, Kevin, because we're always, um, you know, trying to separate um, fact from fiction and, you know, part of me says, oh my goodness, there's a play about Percy. There's a play about, there's a movie about Percy and it's got Christopher Walken and, you know, Christina Ricci, who I don't know, but I understand is, is some sort of Hollywood movie star. So anytime, you know, there's an opportunity to, 
to showcase agriculture in, um, you know, uh, modern day media, you know, one might say that's a good thing. Um, but really, one thing that I've learned having worked in agriculture for like 37, 38 years now is agriculture is a very, very complicated, complex business and a very high technology business. I mean, the technology that farmers are applying on the farm now compared to 20 years ago would just blow your mind if if you actually followed from step one to, to modern day. And I think when you come to something like entertainment, it's not if they tried to follow that story, Kevin, it would be so boring. I mean, it would never make a good movie. And the things I liked about the movie, it had great visuals, not always right all the time, but it had beautiful pictorial scenes of, you know, an agricultural landscape. It had great music. I really liked the soundtrack. <laughs> I don't know who was in the soundtrack, but I liked the music. Um, and I think they're discussing issues, but I think where it falls down again, and it's the same thing that we see today. And I work with an organization called the Canadian Center for Food Integrity, and they do a research and a survey every year where they talk to consumers from Toronto, Montreal, or that might not mean anything to your listeners, but let's say Florida, like people that come from a non-ag background and they ask them about, you know, what are the things about farming and food that you were concerned about and who do you trust? And the interesting thing is they always say, well, I trust the farmer. I really put a lot of trust in the farmer, but their perception of the farmer is my grandpa. It, who was Percy? Percy could have been my grandpa right? It's an older gentleman with a plaid shirt and a cowboy hat or a ball cap. And this guy is the salt of the earth. So how can I not possibly trust him? But that is not the reality. That is some farmers, right? Farming one or two acres or growing a vegetable garden. But that's not the reality of large-scale commodity agriculture that is feeding our nation. And whether it's in a raw commodity like a potato or a strawberry that you mentioned or, a, you know, a whole food that you would eat or whether it's as an ingredient, whether it's canola oil, canola meal, um, wheat that goes into flour, these, this is all part of it. And we need every kind of farmer to be successful and to be able to, you know, not only feed us, but feed their families and run a successful business. And they're all doing it in the most sustainable way that they can think of and trying to protect their land and their soil and et cetera, et cetera. So I don't know if I have a message for everybody, anybody, it's just like, please don't judge that big acreage versus little acreage, mom and pop shop versus, you know, 20,000 acres is different because it ultimately isn't where all those farmers are trying to do the right thing. And that's an excellent way to end it. If people want to follow you on social media, where can they do that? They can follow me on Twitter at at Aggie Coolchick, A-G-G-I-E-C-O-O-L-C-H-I-C-K. And don't ask me how I came up with that handle. It might have involved a few beers, but it's stuck with me and people know me from that. And you know what? I'm always open to conversations. Love that we've had this conversation, Kevin, but I am always open to conversations with anybody who has questions, even if they disagree with us. I love to have those discussions. It's something that I so embrace and I, I can learn from people with different opinions too about how food should be grown. So I'm not saying that we're doing it 100% the right way and I always tell people there's not a right way or a wrong way. There's multiple ways you can grow food and I think they all have their place. Now, very well said. Well, Aggies is a University of, of Manitoba. I think it is, and I think in Saskatchewan they're called agros. So okay. <laughs> even in even in Canada we have different ways of describing who an Aggie is. <laughs> no, very good. Well, thank you very much for joining me today. 
Okay, thank you, Kevin. It's been great having the discussion, and good luck with your show. And thank you for listening to another episode of Talking Biotech Podcast. I hope this clarifies what really separates fact from Hollywood are really important. So share them with other people. Watch the movie. Um, There's a lot of beautiful stuff in there. It was the first time my wife ever saw canola, and she's a farmer. Um, So, yeah, you know, Florida, we don't grow that here. But thank you very much for listening, and we'll talk to you again next week. The Talking Biotech Podcast reflects the personal views of Dr. Kevin Fulta and its guests. These are not the views of the University of Florida, its faculty, staff, or students. But after all, it is science, so they probably are, but it has to be clear that there is no university affiliation with this podcast, which is a damn shame, but I guess that's how it goes. So feel free to share this science communication effort, recommend guests, and support us with a few shekels over on Patreon. We invest all funds back into promotion of the podcast to widen the audience, enhance production, and expand science communication efforts in many ways. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.